Chapter 2 Tuesday, Bottle Green Still that afternoon. Before we came to the station, Dad had instructed me to avoid talking about Friday night. I had to stick to what we'd discussed. But when we got there, he was the first person to divert from the plan, not me. Even though they were on the other side of the waiting room, I could hear him firing question after question at the police officer. Is this a formal interview? he asked. About young boys visiting B's house. Low murmurs rippled from the detective, grey-white noise in the background that floated away as if it didn't want to draw attention to itself. Oh, okay. Not formal, but a first account about B and her relationship with Lucas Drury in particular. That's it? I've tried to explain to Jasper what you might want to ask him, but it's difficult for someone like him. Grey-white lines turned into fluffy clouds and drifted off. Have you tried to get hold of B yet? Dad went on. More muted coloured murmurs as the detective's head moved up and down. Something about the police not being able to locate her yet for questioning. What was a first account? Why was I really here? I looked from one man to the other but discovered no clues stamped on their faces. Did Dad and the detective want me to talk about my first impression of B. Larkham's voice? Sky blue. My memory of our first meeting? I have a feeling we're going to be great friends. Or did they want to know about her first threat? Do this for me tonight, or I won't let you watch the parakeets from my bedroom window ever again. I'll stop feeding them unless you do exactly as I say. I wanted Dad to explain what they were discussing, but he had to fetch the boxes from the car. While we waited, I watched the light dove-grey tapping of my foot and felt the detective's eyes slice like a knife through my forehead and into my brain, as if he knew every detail from beginning to end. The whole ghastly coloured story with no edits. The waiting room walls closed in on me. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't hear anything or see any colours. I forgot the story I had to tell, the one Dad and me had rehearsed for hours at home. Instead, I walked over to the detective, took a deep breath, and began to confess while I had the chance. He remained silent as I told him all about the ring-necked parakeets nesting in B. Larkham's oak tree. They're incredibly intelligent and musically colourful like a vibrant orchestra. They've already got me into trouble with the police and our neighbours, but are still my favourite birds in the world. More importantly, I said very loudly and clearly, Ice blue crystals with glittery edges and jagged silver icicles. I didn't have time to explain these were the colours and shapes of B's screams on Friday night, because Dad returned, carrying the first two boxes. Don't talk without me here, Jasper, he said. Sit back down over there. A deep line appeared between his eyes. He was annoyed, or angry, or anxious, because I'd launched into the story without him. Dad needn't have worried. I'd spent three minutes and twenty-three seconds describing the parakeets and their glorious colours, but hadn't got to the part about hurting B. Larkin with the sharp, glinty knife and all the blood yet. Dad's left eye twitched as he turned to the man in the suit. 
Art's his favourite subject at school. He'll get carried away talking about colours and painting if you let him. His muddy ochre voice transmitted a secret warning to me. Keep quiet or someone will carry you away to a different world. I returned to the bright orange plastic chair while the detective punched silver coin-shaped numbers into the door panel and disappeared. Dad came back and forth with boxes. I unfolded my arms in case light copper thought I looked defensive and had something to hide. Dad always says that first impressions are important. Focus on a person's face and make eye contact, otherwise you'll look shifty. If this is too difficult, fake eye contact by staring above a person's eyebrows. Try to act normal. Don't flap your arms. Don't rock. Don't go on about your colours. Don't tell anyone what you did to be Larkham. Remember, that's not the reason they want to speak to us today. I was sure I'd impressed the detective. I told him the absolute truth. Well, 66% of it. I hadn't told him everything. I didn't want to think about the missing 34%. After three minutes and 15 seconds, the desk sergeant buzzed us through the door. Dad heaved the boxes into a small room. A man in a white shirt entered ten seconds later. He looked at me, and then up at the camera. Hello, Jasper. Thank you for coming here today. For the record, I'm DC Richard Chamberlain. Also present is Jasper's father, Ed Wishart. It's Tuesday the 12th of April, and we're here to discuss an allegation made against your neighbour, B. Larkham. His voice was a gross shade of rusty chrome orange. What was your name again? I said, shuddering. Richard Chamberlain, like the actor, he replied. My one and only claim to fame. Shall we get started? We sat opposite each other on the sofas, me shuffling almost off the edge to avoid the vomit-looking stain, and Dad yanking me backwards with a hard grip. My heart had dropped like a huge glass lift. This wasn't the first detective I'd met in the waiting room who'd listened carefully and only spoken reassuring white-grey murmurs. This was Rusty Chrome Orange, possibly named after a mysterious actor from some American TV crime show. I took an instant dislike to him due to, one, his colour, obviously, two, he talked about dumb actors and claimed to be famous, three, he stared directly at me. Without warning, he launched into a series of baffling questions about school, my friends and teachers, gifts for boys and condom wrappers that can be disguised as sparkly sweets, but his questions were all wrong from the start and they haven't improved. Where's the grey-suited man from the waiting room? I don't want to be rude, but I hate your colour and I don't want to talk to you. Jasper, we discussed this, son, about being polite and respectful when you answer questions. Yes, but perhaps the police officer who had grey-white whispers can come back. He seemed to get me. I don't want Richard Chamberlain, like the actor. I want the first detective from the waiting room. Silence. People say silence is golden. They're wrong. It's no colour at all. Rusty chrome orange speaks again. 
That was me, Jasper, in the waiting room. You talked to me about colours and parakeets. What? He picks up his notebook. Ice blue crystals with glittery edges and jagged silver icicles. You also said that parakeets are incredibly intelligent. I glance at Dad to verify Rusty Crame Orange's story. His head moves up and down. You were speaking to DC Chamberlain while I got boxes from the car. I can scarcely believe it. I can't look at Dad or the detective from the waiting room who has morphed into Richard Chamberlain, a.k.a. Rusty Chrome Orange. I stare at the grey jacket lying next to the detective on the sofa. He's taken it off. I didn't notice him carry the jacket in here. Oh. I can't think of anything else to say. Oh is a small word, exactly how I feel. Tiny. Insignificant. Oh. A colour that people can't see. Sorry, I forgot. It's a lie, of course, but a useful one. Like, sorry, I didn't see you. I trot it out at least once a day when I don't recognise someone I'm supposed to. I did try to warn you. Dad's muddy ochre voice says to Richard Chamberlain. He doesn't recognise me if I turn up at his school unexpectedly. He's right. I don't remember Dad's face. Richard Chamberlain's face. Anyone's face. I see them, yet I don't. Not as complete pictures. I close my eyes. I hear the muddy ochre of Dad's voice, but I can't draw together the image of his face in my mind. I couldn't pick him out of a lineup of men wearing blue jeans and blue shirts, his usual uniform. Is that what Dad's got on today? I can't remember. I haven't paid enough attention. When he speaks, the rusty chrome orange of Richard Chamberlain's voice pummels my eyeballs. But if he walked up to me in the street, I wouldn't be able to recognise him unless I'd memorised a distinctive detail. The make of his watch, a hat, socks featuring a character like Homer Simpson, or the colour of his voice. Those are the kinds of things I look for first, rather than hair colour or styles that change whenever people run their hands over their heads. I opened my eyes again. None of the usual clues helped me today. Rusty Chrome Orange wasn't wearing unusual clothes. He tricked me by taking off his grey jacket and whispered, which disguised the genuine colour of his voice with white and grey lines. Whispers are always frustrating for me because they completely change the hues of people's voices. Coughs and colds play the same mean trick, which is really sneaky too. More colourless silence. It lasts longer than before. I count ten teeth with my tongue before Richard Chamberlain clears his throat, creating an offensive ochre shade. You've gone to town on this, he says, pointing at my boxes as I perch with one buttock hovering in mid-air over the fried egg-shaped splodge on the sofa. I sigh. We didn't go to town... We came straight here, otherwise we'd have been even later. Okay. The rusty chrome orange stretches into an equally unpleasant brownish mud colour. Richard Chamberlain. Call me Richard. 
clarifies that he's surprised by how many notebooks I keep and stresses, There was no need to bring so many today. He only wants to know if anything I've seen might help the investigation. Before Dad can stop me, I pull out the crucial notebook from box number six and turn to 22 January. This isn't the true beginning, but it's an incredibly important day in the sequence of events that followed. 7.02am. Parakeets land in the oak tree at 20 Vincent Gardens. Happy, bright pink and sapphire showers with golden droplets. 7.06am. Man wearing cabbage green pyjamas opens upstairs window of house next to B. Larkham's. Shouts prickly tomato red words at parakeets. Clue. Number 22 belongs to David Gilbert. Can we skip forwards? Rusty Chrome Orange interrupts, setting my teeth on edge. I'm not sure this is getting us anywhere. I sigh. We're back to where we started with Rusty Chrome Orange asking the wrong questions again. If he were a proper detective, he'd have asked me to rewind and start even earlier, from the day it all began, 17 January the day B. Larkham moved into our street. I guess I understand Rusty Chrome Orange's impatience. It's been four days since her murder, and he still doesn't seem to realise she's dead. But he needs to follow the correct order. I try again with my entry from 22 January, since this part is clear in my head. It's not confused at all. 8.29am. Cherry Cords with a dog barking yellow french fries, talks to Dad on street. Smoking black duffel coat man arrives, but I don't hear him speak. Cherry Cords threatens to kill parakeets using a shotgun. The colour of his trousers, the dull red, grainy voice, and the dog give me clues. This must be David Gilbert from number 22. I don't know the colour of black duffel coat man's voice. I double-check his identity later, and Dad says it was Ollie Watkins. I haven't spoken to him before. He moved back to the street a couple of weeks ago to look after his mum, Lily Watkins, who is dying of cancer at number 18. I paused and wait for Rusty Chrome Orange to catch up, because this is the first sign a murder's going to happen on our street. But he's hitting his knee with a pen and has missed the vital clue. Tap, tap, tap. A light brown sound with flaky blue-black edges. I ignore the irritating colour and jump ahead by nine minutes. 8.38am. Set off for school with Dad, worrying about David Gilbert. He's lived on our street as long as Mrs Watkins. I ask Dad why he mentioned the shotgun. Dad says he's a retired gamekeeper and still goes pheasant and partridge shooting every year. Why, oh why, isn't someone trying to stop the potential murderer, David Gilbert? 9.02am. Arrive at school. Late. Dad tells me not to worry. He's sorry. Shouldn't have mentioned David Gilbert's hobby and former occupation. Forget about it. 9.06am. Must save parakeets. Concentrate on potential future murderer, David Gilbert, from number 22. Dial 999 on my mobile phone in toilet and report death threat. 
9.08 a.m., operator says, Let's take a break there, Jasper. Rusty Chrome Orange interrupts. I think we should cover this. I can see from our log this was one of a number of 999 calls you've made to the police recently. He stops talking and starts again. These calls weren't emergencies. Unnecessary 999 calls take up police resources, which could be used for proper emergencies. They waste police time. Who is this idiot? He's wasting my time right now when I could be watching over my parakeets. Maybe the actor Richard Chamberlain is brighter. Of course it was necessary. It was an emergency that day. Don't you see? I was reporting an imminent threat to life. One you should have taken more seriously if you wanted to stop a murder. Jasper? Dad starts. That's okay. Rusty Chrome Orange holds up his hand like he's directing traffic. I hope he's better at that than interviewing me about serious crimes. Your dad's already explained you suspect someone on your street has killed a few parakeets that nest in Miss Larkham's front garden. I know twelve parakeets are dead. Thirteen, if you count the baby parakeet which died on 24 March. But that was an accident. The other deaths were definitely deliberate. Rusty Chrome Orange's head bounces up and down. I understand you found recent events hard to come to terms with. Yes, I confirm. Murder upsets me. Stop it, Jasper. Dad warns. Rusty Chrome Orange stops cars again with his hand. It's okay, Mr. Wishart. I can handle this. He leans towards me and I almost fall off the cushions to escape from him. Don't worry, Jasper. We can certainly discuss your concerns about the death of the parakeets, but first I'd like to talk about your friends, B. Larkham and Lucas Drury. Where did the Metropolitan Police find this man? Is he the last human survivor of a zombie apocalypse? Honestly, I thought this was what we were talking about before he changed the subject abruptly and brought up the massacre of my parakeets. I should give him another chance, I suppose, even though he's stupid enough to think Lucas and me are friends. We've never been friends. We were B. Larkham's friends, her willing accomplices. I try again to make him understand. Ice blue crystals with glittery edges and jagged silver icicles. I emphasise the icicles because that's important. It's the one thing about Friday night that sticks in my mind. The rest is too blurry, too many blanks and curly question marks, but the icicles, jagged points, remind me of the knife. You've told me that twice already, but I'm afraid artists' colours don't mean a lot to me, Rusty Chrome Orange says. Look, I'm sorry if I've confused you. Let's be clear. None of the boys we're speaking to are in any trouble or danger. We're trying to establish a few background facts before we track down Miss Larkham and speak to her ourselves. I'm attempting to tell him he'll never be able to speak to B. Larkham, but he's not interested. His voice grates like nails down a blackboard. I want to go home. Please, Jasper, concentrate. It's not for much longer. Dad's muddy ochre has a yellowish pleading tone. I can't do this. I'm too young. I can't do this. I'm too young. I speak loudly, but Dad doesn't hear. 
Jasper's hardly an ideal witness in your investigation, he says. There must be other boys at his school who can assist you. Boys who don't have as many special needs. I need to go home. That's my special need. My tummy's hurting. No one's listening. They never do. It's like I don't exist. Maybe I've melted away beneath my fingertips into nothing. I understand your concerns, Mr Wishart. I'll raise them at our case meeting this week, but we need to look closer at Jasper's relationship with Miss Larkham and Lucas Drury. We believe he may have information that could assist our inquiries. He may have made notes of important times and dates in their alleged relationship. I doubt it. A fluttering of pale lemon. One of my notebooks protests against Dad's probing fingers. Look at this entry. The people going in and out of B's house have only basic details. Black blazer enters, pale blue coat leaves, etc. Jasper has no sense of what they look like, even if they're teenagers or adults. I doubt he'd be able to identify Lucas or any other boy. Dad flicks through my notepad. Most of Jasper's entries don't even record people. They're his sightings of the parakeets nesting in bees' tree and other birds. He's a keen ornithologist. Rusty chrome orange's hand dips into a box and pulls out a steel blue notebook with a white rabbit on the front. That's not right, I say, surprised. The rabbit doesn't belong there. Okay, sorry, Rusty chrome orange says. The white rabbit notebook returns to its hiding place in the box. Look at this notebook, Dad says, holding up another. It's all about his colours. How's that interesting to you, to anyone? I want to scream and kick and flap. Dad doesn't see my difference in a good, winning the X Factor kind of way. He doesn't look for the colours we might have in common, only those that set us apart. I need to hold on. I have to focus on the colour I love most in the world. Cobalt blue. That's all I've got left of Mum. The colour of her voice. But after B. Larkin moved into our street, the shade became diluted. It happened gradually and I never noticed until it was too late. Take me home, I say. Now, now, now. The colour and ragged shape of my voice shocks me. It's usually cool blue, a lighter shade than Mum's cobalt blue. Today it looks strange. Is it actually a darker shade than Mum's? More greyish? I can't remember. I need to remember her. I want to paint her voice. I have to leave! It's too late. Her colours slipping from my grasp, sand through my fingertips. I plaster my hands to my eyes. I want to keep the cobalt blue vivid, reassuring behind my eyelids. Rub, rub, rub. I want her cardigan. I forgot to bring one of the buttons to rub because I was concentrating on making sure my boxes were correctly ordered. I glance across the room and the back of my neck prickles. Rusty chrome orange told me the mirror was ornamental, like the ship picture on the far wall. He insisted there was no one behind it, but I can't trust his colour. Someone is standing behind the mirror, scrutinising my face, my mannerisms and laughing at my mix-ups. There are three strangers sitting on crimson sofas on this side of the mirror. I don't recognise any of them. The smallest, the one with dark blonde hair who is rocking backwards and forwards, opens his mouth and screams. 
pale blue with violet-tinged vertical lines. He vomits on the sofa. Dad's silent. He doesn't flick on Radio 2 or tap his fingers on the steering wheel. I guess it's not surprising, considering the whole embarrassing vomit thing. He's still angry with me, even though Rusty Chrome Orange said not to worry. Lots of kids throw up in that room. The police service employs someone to scrape up their sick. Dad says that's the deadbeat career I'll end up with if I don't work harder to control myself. The sofa had definitely seen a lot of sick action. What does Rusty Chrome Orange expect when he hangs a trippy mirror on the wall? One minute you think you're alone, and the next you're surrounded by strangers. He showed me behind the mirror after I'd calmed down. It was a normal wall. No hidden window into another room. No hidden recording devices. I attempt to block out the dark colours and harsh shapes of the lorries and cars rumbling past. Dad hasn't said a word since he turned on the engine. Marmalade orange with pithy yellow spikes. Maybe he's not angry with me. Maybe he's thinking about B. Larkham. He knows we both need time to think about what's happened. Me without distractions of unnecessary colours and shapes. Him without me banging on about my colours and shapes. I should try to make him feel better, considering everything he's done for me. He hasn't forced me to come out of my den over the last three days except to visit the police station. He rang my school yesterday and said I had a bad tummy ache. At least that wasn't a lie. Don't worry, Dad, I say finally. I think we did it. We did what? He asks, without glancing back. We got away with murder. Richard Chamberlain, like the actor, knows nothing. Dad spits out a yellowish cat puke word. I hate swearing. He knows I hate swearing. He's getting back at me for throwing up over Rusty Chrome Orange's sofa. I'm sorry, Jasper. I shouldn't have used that word. Have you understood anything I've told you? Is that what you think's happened? I screw my eyes tightly shut and curl into a ball beneath the seatbelt. Yes, I do. Think. That's what happened back there. Despite his repeated warnings to keep quiet, I tried to confess. Honestly, I did, because I'm very, very sorry about what happened in the kitchen at 20 Vincent Gardens. I deserve to be punished. Rusty Chrome Orange wouldn't listen. I doubt he's going to start looking for B. Larkham's body. Which gives me time. Time to protect the surviving parakeets. I need longer. Around four days until the young begin to abandon the nests in B. Larkham's oak tree and eaves and fly far, far away from the dangers lurking on our street. But I can't leave. I can't ignore the colours anymore. I have to face the truth. I have to remember what happened the night I murdered B. Larkham. <laughs>